0: Good morning. We are glad you are here, and uh, it's a privilege to get to worship together this morning. If you're a visitor, uh, we always want you to know that we really do count it a privilege uh, to worship with you. Reminder at this welcome kiosk after the service, you can go there to get information if you would like it, because we know that finding a church home is a major decision, so we want to help you along in that to help you make a wise decision. Um, my name is Scott Sutton. I was reminded this morning I might need to introduce myself. Um, because uh, I'm not Ben McGraw, who does most of the preaching here. I'm one of three pastors here, and Ben McGraw does the majority of the teaching and preaching. But I have the sweet privilege of starting off the year uh, with six weeks in Romans 1. And so uh, I count it a privilege, and I hope hope the Lord speaks to us clearly through it this morning. Um, But we're glad you're here. And we're in Romans 1, if you want to go ahead and turn there. I'm going to pray, and then we'll dig into the text. Lord, we come come before you this morning, and we humble ourselves before you and just ask um, that you would bless this time. What a privilege it is to sing your praises. What a privilege it is to have um, your breathed out word here in our laps and in front of us uh, to dig into. Um, We humble ourselves before you and ask that you would use this time as you see fit. Specifically this morning, I want to pray for our city council. Your word tells us, Lord, to to pray for those who are in the positions like that. And so we pray for the city council, and particularly this morning, I want to pray for Jerry Ransom. I just pray that you would bless him, encourage him in the truth, and as he serves in that capacity, I pray that you would give him wisdom and discernment to lead well. Uh, I pray for his relationships with others um, that within the council, that it is a unit that is working well together as um, as iron sharpens iron, Lord. Uh, we, we, we ask that. Uh, knowing that you care about the well-being of our city and we are thankful that you are a god who is so involved in such particular details lord we also want to pray for a local church we pray for c3 in commerce as they're meeting together this morning i pray that their time is rich and i pray for david ferguson i pray that he and his wife whitney are uh, are living together in an understanding way so their prayers are never hindered because we know that ministry is difficult and i would say impossible when prayers are hindered and so uh, lord i just pray that you would bless them bless their marriage bless their family And bless that church as they gather this morning and as they continue to gather, Lord. Uh, Again, we humble ourselves before you. And my, my hope this morning is that as we talk about things that might be familiar to a lot of people, is that we would be honest with ourselves and honest with our God, honest with our Creator this morning, as we consider any idols that we might have in our life. I trust you with that, Lord. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I mentioned we're in Romans 1. In this section of scripture, this is week three of a six-part series on the wrath of God and what it is and what it isn't. And that's the wonderful thing about scripture is that you can go to it and get clarity on things that maybe you didn't have clarity on before. Growing up, my view of the wrath of God was just kind of scary. And I thought it was random and I thought it was scary and I didn't understand where it was directed or what it was for. And these verses like this help us to understand what it is, and then how we could possibly um, not be on the receiving end of it, which is, that's where, what we call good news. And so, um, we're in uh, week three, and in this section that we're going into today, we're going to be in verses 21 through 23. The section that we're entering into, because of the content of the section, and the current state of our culture, we have to be really careful this morning to not jump ahead. And what I mean is, We can often be really well-meaning when we open our word, and we open it and we say, okay, what does this mean to me? What does this mean to me? What do I do with this? How can I be a hearer and a doer of the word in this text? What we have to remember, especially in a text like this, is that we should always ask what it says before we ask what it says to us. We should always figure out what does this mean in its context before we try to impose it on our context and honestly, it's really, that's a really easy mistake to make in Romans 1. As I'm going through it, as I'm preparing, in fact, even last week, there were times where I kind of went to the what it means for us before diving too much or diving enough into what it meant in its original context. It's, it's a, an important thing to remember, especially today. What does it mean before asking what does it mean to us? So look at Romans 1, 21 through 23. The title of this morning's sermon is Knowing But Not Knowing you know, jumping into the middle of a chapter, as we've said each week, is a lot like jumping into the middle of conversation. So if we continue our conversational technique that we've used the last couple weeks, we could say, you know, this is Paul writing his letter to the church in Rome. We say, Paul, why do people deserve God's wrath? And the answer would be, because what can be known about God is plain to them, but they rejected him. Well, Paul, how did they reject him? How, how, did, how, did, how has humankind rejected God? The answer, by not honoring him, by not giving thanks, and by exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images resembling the mortal. This is the human story. Paul doesn't think that only some people need the gospel. He doesn't think that only the Gentiles need the gospel. He doesn't think that only the Jews need the gospel. In fact, one thing we find in Romans is he he doesn't even think that only lost people need the gospel. He's like, everybody needs the gospel. I want to come and preach the gospel to anyone who will hear it. Saved, lost, Jew, Gentile, I am eager to come to you that I may preach the gospel and impart a gift to you in it. Everyone needs the gospel. Everyone needs the power of God unto salvation because everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. As we, re- as we just read those verses 21 through 23, you may realize, man, there's kind of a lot of details in there. I mean, he's really getting into the mechanics of, of what idolatry is. This happens, and then this happens, and this happens, when this happens, and when this happens, there's an exchange that happens. It's just a few verses, but there's a lot of details in it. And the reason for that can be seen when we consider Paul's background. Consider, Paul was a Jew who had excelled among the Jews. So Paul knew. The history of the Jews. Paul would have in mind, as he's sharing this, the Jews when they were in Egypt and the temptation that they had to turn to the idolatry of Egypt. Paul would have had in mind the history of the Jews when they were in Bab- the Babylonian exile and the idolatry of Babylon and the temptation for the Jews to take that on, the Assyrian exile. And, and the temptation to take on the idolatry of the Assyrians. And even this morning in Rome, the rampant idolatry in Rome that we'll dig into in a minute. Paul was very, very aware of how utterly corrosive idolatry was. He was utterly aware of how much of a human problem it has been in every culture that has ever existed on the face of this planet that our creator has created. And the Jews were regularly tempted to be a part of it. And now the Jews and Gentiles who are now Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians are tempted to be a part of it in Rome. Paul's experiences with idolatry are very personal. Keep your finger on Romans 1, but turn over to Acts 14 real quick. Just a little bit to the left. In Acts 14, we find this experience with idolatry that I can't help but thinking what Paul he must have been motivated, motivated by such experiences as he shared these very particular details about idolatry with the church in Rome. So in Acts 14, verse 8, it says, Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprung up and began walking. Amazing. Power of God, right? And look what happens. And when the crowd saw that Paul, what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker and the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garland to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice to the, with the crowds. I mean, talk about something really good going really south really quick, right? Someone just got healed in the power of Jesus. They're saying, oh, you must be Zeus and Hermes. The gods have come down to us. You know, we have a guy here who specializes, and he's the priest of Zeus, and what he's going to come and bring some sacrifices. We're going to have a sweet old time of worship, worshiping you guys. Imagine what that must have been like for Paul. I want you to see this because I want you to understand how personal the problem of idolatry was with Paul. Do you think he let him worship him? Do you think he was okay with that? Do you think he was just quiet because he didn't want to offend anybody? But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things, this idolatry, this worshiping of Hermes and Zeus and all other number of gods. You should turn from these things, these vain things, to a living God, unlike the carved images. The living God who, now make the connection to last week as we talked about God revealing himself through creation, away with the idolatry, turn to the living God who made the heaven, And the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. Every nation that has ever practiced idolatry was left to walk in their own ways. But even as they walked in their own ways, God did not leave them without the witness of himself and what he had made in creation. And what is that witness? For he did good by giving you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they secretly restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. So idolatry was a very personal thing for Paul. He had seen it in the history of his people. He had experienced people trying to make him a god. So turn back to Romans 1. The reason I share that with you before we dive directly into this text is to help you understand why Paul's so particular. Why so many details? The reason for it is that this text is very much diagnostic. It's diagnostic of our human problem. How did this happen? How has mankind gotten into such a mess over and over again by exchanging the glory of the immortal God for mortal images of birds and reptiles and creeping things? So our focus today is going to be on the mechanics of idolatry. It could be a subheading under the heading, honoring or knowing but not honoring the mechanics of idolatry. The person who works on your car is a mechanic, right? Or if you work on your own car, to some level, you are a mechanic. And what do you do? You, something's wrong. There's a weird noise. Something's not working, right? Something's out of whack. You pop the hood and you look at the details. You pop the hood and you look at how things are working together. Where's the noise coming from? Can we trace that back to what the issue is? The mechanic pops the hood and takes a closer look. We do it with uh, all kinds of issues in our life. We do it with exercise, energy, weight issues. We do it with our finances. There was one time where I, we were looking at our finances and we had to pop the hood and, and look at the mechanics of it because it's like, man, we are not able to save the money that we should be saving. And so i well, let's pop the hood. Let's take a look at the mechanics of our, of our finance. Look at our spending and everything. It turns out we did not have a $300 a month line item for Chick-fil-A, so we had to reel that in and figure out, okay, that's the problem when we look at the mechanics, and now if we kind of reel that in, we can correct our course and know what's going on. That's what we're doing this morning. Our outline for the morning is going to be, in order to understand the human problem with idolatry, we're going to consider the mechanics of idolatry, going to pop the hood and take a look at it, and then we're going to look at a few examples So Romans 1, the very first part in 21, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. The first thing, go ahead and put that first slide up. The next first slide. Yeah, that one. Idolatry is personal. Idolatry is personal. The reason we're starting with that is because that's where Paul goes in this verse. For although they knew God, you know, when we're talking about the mechanics of something, it can feel a little little sterile or a little rigid or a little impersonal. So as we're talking about the mechanics of idolatry, number one, on the forefront, what we have to see this morning is idolatry is personal. Paul can make the assumption that everyone who is guilty of idolatry knew God because God has made himself known in creation. I want you all to think about how this might change your perspectives. A person doesn't have to claim to know God to then be held responsible for obeying God. This is general revelation. Whether a person claims it or not, all created human beings know God. Not in a salvific sense, not in a saving sense. That only happens through Jesus. But in the general sense, you can look out that window or out the door and you can know there is someone bigger than you who has created you. By God's design, you can know such things and you should, whether you claim it or not. There is an undeniable connection between us and our creator. You should know that. If you're a believer, there is an undeniable connection between you and your creator. But as you engage unbelievers, there is also an undeniable connection between them and their creator. They are created as image bearers. So no one can be guilty of innocent idolatry. It's personal. No one can be guilty of accidental idolatry. My bad. My bad doesn't work in this situation because you should have known better. Because God has made it so that you can there is no innocent idolatry. There is no accidental idolatry. Idolatry is personal. All human beings are guilty of idolatry because all human beings have shown willful rebellion against our creator, and we did it when we didn't get what we wanted. That's when it happens. It's personal. The second is that idolatry is intentional. You may have gleaned that from our first little section, but it's intentional. Notice it doesn't say that God didn't get honored. It isn't passive. It says, they did not honor God. It's intentional. They knew God. They have everything they need to know that there is a God who has created them and all things created, that the breath they're breathing is a borrowed breath because it came from God. They did not honor God. There were many fitting moments to honor God, and we chose not to ascribe the honor to him that he is due. When we don't honor God, what that means is that we take this thing that we might be enjoying or we, or we take something that we should be thankful for and we, we don't show thanks, and we ascribe it to something else. Maybe we have success in our, in our relationships or marriages or business, and we just equate it to the fact that we're just savvy business people, or we're... You know, wise relationally. And we don't give thanks to God. So, this, it's, it's a very intentional thing. It's not accidental. Third, idolatry is ungrateful. The mechanics of idolatry, it's ungrateful. We don't give thanks because we're not thankful. We think behaviorally sometimes on this. I know I do it with my kids, but I want you to think about what's going on on the inside. When my kids say, if someone does something for my children or gives them something, you know, whatever. We are at the bank the other day. They give my kid a lollipop. If my kid just takes that and turns around to walk off, oh, as a parent, uh-uh, that ain't happening. You say thank you. I was thinking about that interaction that happens in so many circumstances. Right? You say thank you. But really, if you were thankful, you would have given thanks, Right? So really, rather than saying, you say thank you, I should say, be thankful, because people who are thankful give thanks. But idolatry is ungrateful, because you should have given thanks to God, and you would have if you were thankful. But that's the human problem. We don't give thanks because we're not acknowledging God and honoring him, and therefore we're not giving thanks to him in the things that have been made known through creation. Idolatry is ungrateful. Number four, idolatry is stupid. (laughs) I don't, we don't throw that word around flippantly in our house. I don't like my children, well, it's stupid, you're stupid, this is stupid. I can't stand that. However, I am completely okay when my children use the word stupid in regards to sin and idolatry. Because it's the word that the Bible uses. We can get a sense of it here in in, uh, in Romans 1. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their thinking. That's our first clue that idolatry is stupid. We're going to look at a couple more, but rather than honoring God and giving thanks to them, they became futile in their thinking. Futile means incapable of producing any useful result. Incapable of producing any useful result. So if you're walking in the flesh, you might think, well, that can be useful. I can make some money or I can manipulate someone, whatever it might be. But what we're talking about here is a kingdom perspective. Their thinking was such, when we're in idolatry, our thinking is such that when we view the way things are going and when we're thinking through them and when we're thinking through what we're doing, when we are idolatrous, idolatry makes us stupid and all of our thoughts become completely unuseful for the forward movement of the kingdom of God you got to have a kingdom perspective here. So when you don't have this kingdom perspective, your thoughts are futile because the thoughts you have, how am I going to do this? How am I going to maneuver this? What are we going to do here? What's the wise move here? It's all stupid because you don't have thoughts in that moment that are useful for the forward movement of the kingdom of God. Feudal thinking. One might ask how you would even know if your thoughts were futile, if they are such. Claiming to be wise they became fools. This is the worst, isn't it? Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Fools don't often go out quietly, and fools can sometimes be the loudest among us, and sometimes we're the fool. Have you ever had that uncomfortable moment where you were asserting something that you found out that in fact you were completely wrong? Has that ever happened to you? Yeah, if you say no, you're probably doing it now. Yeah. <laughs> Asserting that I'm right, everybody listen to me, this is what is going on, this is the situation. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Fools don't often go out quietly. There's, and there's nothing more uncomfortable than a person who is making confident assertions about something they know little about. You ever been in the situation where you're watching someone make confident assertions about something they know little about? If you watch the news, it happens all the time. If, as a parent, you've ever been given parenting advice by a teenager, you know what I'm talking about. I'm glad you got this figured out. I'll take that into account. Thank you very much. There was a time, I was trying to think about a time where I have done this, and I have many examples, but there's only one that I'm okay with sharing from the pulpit. (laughs) And... um, I was helping Brad Cardwell put some floors in years and years ago, and we were doing some trim work. And this guy showed up to, to help us do the trim work. And as he got there, I was kind of telling him, you know, we got some rounded corners here, so you want to cut these angles like this and you, so you don't have a gap and you corner around. And, you know, I was kind of giving him some, some tips on how to do trim carpentry. Well, that guy was named Scott Fiesel. <laughs> For those of you who know Scott Feasel you know that he has forgotten more about trim carpentry than any of us, uh, or the, certainly that I, have ever known. And I remember looking back on that and thinking, "Ah, oh, such an idiot, just making these confident assertions about something that I knew nothing about in comparison to that guy. But he was so gracious. He was like, okay, mm-hmm, that's fine. <laughs> ever, ever since then, if I ask him to help me with a project at my house, usually we'll start it and I'm trying to help and what we come to the conclusion is, Scott, it would probably be better, Sutton, Scott Sutton. It'd probably be better if, just, just move, just get out of the way, like, the, the, like not only should you not be making confident assertions, just move, just, just, sit, just sit out, sit down over here. Claiming to be wise, I made a little bit of a fool of myself. Turn over to Jeremiah 10. I want us to see that this is not something that is new and unique to Rome. This idolatry. Being stupid. Throughout the prophets, we see uh, really particularly heavy language against those who are exchanging the glory of the immortal God for mortal images. And in Jeremiah 10, we see a warning to the people of God. And these warnings have happened throughout all of history as God's people have been. Um, In in exile and under the power of other people or just existing in countries that are far greater and stronger, or far stronger than they are as a a group. And here in Jeremiah 10, let's read. Hear the word that the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the peoples are vanity. He through the prophet Jeremiah, God is saying, You're my people, Israel. You should be different. When you see people getting worked up over signs, they see a sign from a God, or a sign from the weather, or a sign from something in creation, and they get all worked up and they're upset. Their customs are vain. Do not adopt those customs. Do not become a reflection of the culture to your God when you're supposed to be a reflection of God to the culture that you live in. Don't get caught up in that. Maybe, maybe in, from a pastoral epistle you might think it sounds sort of like don't get entangled in these civilian affairs. It's, it's not the way it's supposed to be. You're supposed to be different. And the prophet goes on to say, A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with a hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Underline cannot move in your Bibles. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. We've all been there, right? Sometimes you read things and you're like, I have never seen a scarecrow in a cucumber field. Just go with it. What does it look like? The scarecrow has to be carried for they cannot cannot speak. It just sits there. It doesn't scare off scarecrows from the cucumbers by saying, hey, get out of here, because it cannot speak. Underline cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Underline cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them. Do not be afraid of the gods and the spirits of the pagans, of those who are not following the one true God. Don't be afraid of their gods, for they cannot do evil. Underline cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to do good. So they can't move. The idols and the, the little figures and the things like that for the people, they can't move. They can't speak. They can't walk. They can't do evil. Can't, it's not even in them to do good. And then listen to the transition. There is none like you, O oh Lord. You are great. Your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O king of nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and, among, and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. They are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. The instruction they're getting from their gods is the instruction you would get from like this podium or that piece of wood or any other inanimate object that's been created and carved by a man. It is stupid in comparison. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Uphaz. The, the language there is in, is saying, you bring gold and silver from the ends of the earth and you lay it over a piece of wood, the work of craftsmen and the hands of the goldsmith. Their clothing is violet and purple. They are all the work of skilled men, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God. And the everlasting king at his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Thus shall you say to them, the gods, lowercase g, who did not make the heavens and the earth, shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. See the distinction that is being drawn between the lowercase g gods. And the one true God. They will perish from under creation because they didn't create it. Verse 12. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens, and he makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain, and he springs forth the wind from his storehouses. Every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his images are false and there is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of delusion. At the time of their punishment, they shall perish. Not like these is he who is the portion of Jacob. Our God is not like these idols. Our God is not like The lowercase gods that all of the nations are turning to in droves. Not like these is he who is the portion of Jacob, for he is the one who formed all things. And Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. The way that the prophet explains these differences is by saying they didn't create this world, the creator is true. Because of what he has done, and in that creation, he has made himself known. And these lowercase g gods can do nothing for you. A prophetic word showing the massive difference between the wisdom of honoring your creator and the stupidity of worshiping the created. And we could spend the next year at all of the prophetic words talking about that very thing. The wisdom of honoring your creator and the stupidity of exchanging that honor and worshiping the created things. Turn back to Romans 1. So, idolatry is personal. Idolatry is intentional. Idolatry is ungrateful. Idolatry is stupid, and idolatry is a heart issue. The fifth point this morning is that idolatry is a heart issue. It's not that we just did the wrong thing outwardly. We have done the wrong thing outwardly because of something that's going on inwardly. A darkened heart goes hand in hand with a futile mind. It's out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks. So there's times where we could say, oh, I didn't mean to say that. But what we really mean is I didn't mean for you to hear me say that because it was in my heart. It wouldn't come out of my mouth unless it came out of my heart. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks out of the overflow of our hearts. We move, we worship, we respond, we consider, we think particular ways. And idolatry is a heart issue. A darkened heart goes hand in hand with a futile mind. This idolatrous heart is one that lacks devotion to God. And an idolatrous heart lacks trust in God. I mean, ask for a moment, do you trust God with everything? It's a heart that's set on wanting what it wants when they want it. And if they don't get it, they will take the place of God to get it. God, you're not doing what I want when I want it. I'm taking you out of the God role. I'm going to put myself in there. It's a heart issue because idolatry is all about control, all about being in control. It's a heart issue. When these five things are in place, when you see these things, the personal, intentional, ungrateful, stupid heart issues that are the mechanics of idolatry, when they're in place, an inevitable exchange takes place. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. I think it's probably difficult for us to imagine what it would be like to see an entire culture, and in fact, the greatest nation on earth at that time. Turning their affections toward a carven image of a bird or a reptile. That may be hard for us to wrap our heads around, but what I want us to see is this it's what happened in Jeremiah 10. This kind of movement by human beings is not new. If you go back to the garden, it's the very thing that Adam and Eve did. Oh, we can be like God? Well, let's take him out of that spot, and I'm going to eat this fruit, I'll be in charge. If I can be like him, maybe I don't need him. And that's what's happening in Rome. It's what happened in Jeremiah. It's what's happened at the beginning. It's what's happened throughout the history of Rome with Babylon, with, with, uh, in Egypt, and, and now it's what's happening in Rome. I want us to look a little more closely at this idolatry of Rome that Paul is more particularly talking about. It's the setting of this letter. Remember, we have to ask what does it say before we consider what it says to us. When we think about religion in Rome personally, I often think of Judaism because Judaism existed for centuries in Rome. But what we have to realize as we're reading this text is that the biggest and most pervasive and most public religion in Rome was paganism. Paganism. Not everyone's church history buff, so I'm not a church history buff, but as I study it I realized there's so much more to understand about these dynamics than I originally knew. Sometimes we think of paganism as like the opposite of religion. Like, religion's always good, and if you don't have it, it's bad. Well, that is not the case, for paganism was the main religion. They were an extremely religious people in Rome. They didn't just need to be more religious. They were maybe more religious than we are here this morning. Maybe. Some of us might have a tendency to think about these people who pray to idols. as just like simple, superstitious, and kind of ridiculous people the kind of people that no one's really going to take seriously. Like if you saw someone who was praying to a little idol and trying to get their way via that idol, it, you'd probably think, man, no one's going to take them seriously. That was not the case in Rome. I want you to consider this excerpt from first century Roman worship. I dug into the, some archives and, and looked at the history of Roman worship, and what I found was it was a complicated detailed system of this pagan idolatry that existed in Rome. So I took a bunch of things and tried to make it a, a little bitty summary paragraph that I want to read to you to give you an idea of what it was that Paul was talking about. When he's saying, they have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and reptiles and creeping things, this is what he's talking about. For the Romans, religion was a force that bound families together, it bound subjects to their ruler, and it bound men to the gods. God's. Roman religion was divided into two. Spirits watched over people, gods watched over people, families, and households. And then what happened was the head of the households were in charge of household worship that honored those gods and spirits that were looking over them. It was family worship. It was like life group. Let's get together for life group and talk and make sure we honor these spirits and gods that we believe to be watching over us. Romans also had a set of public gods, such as Jupiter and Mars. State worship was much more formal. Colleges of priests paid tribute to these gods on behalf of Rome itself. So not only did they meet in homes to worship the gods, but in fact, the the state, the, the, the empire, had an entire college of priests who were meticulous in the details, to make sure that the gods were honored through particular adherence to what they wanted so that Rome would be blessed. Does it sound familiar? We had priests? Worshipping at home? Worshipping in public? The objective of Roman worship was to gain the blessings of the gods and thereby gain prosperity for themselves, their families, and their communities. The emperors understood the central importance of religion to the lives of the Romans, and they used it to their own ends. Augustus appointed himself as, get this, the chief priest. So they have a priesthood, and then they have a chief priest, and now the guy who's in charge, the the emperor who's in charge, is saying, I am Pontifex Maximus. Pontifex Maximus, the chief priest. So he's over all the other priests to make sure that everything goes the way they want it to go, control, 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 so that the gods are appeased and Rome is blessed. At the point, at the, uh, during the season when he was appointing himself as the chief priest, it was the season of Halley's Comet, and he used it to his own ends. He said that Halley's Comet was in fact the, uh, the spirit or the god of Caesar Augustus going through the sky, the sky to make it clear that Augustus himself was the son of a god. He, like, to be clear, he didn't make Halley's Comet. He's claiming someone else's work, right? And he's doing it to his own benefit, and it's all about control. Unlike most religions today, the Roman gods did not demand strong moral behavior. <laughs> Go figure that, right? You know why the Roman gods didn't demand strong moral behavior? Because the Roman people didn't want strong moral behavior. Roman religion was involved in cult worship. Approval from the gods did not depend on a person's behavior, but on perfectly accurate observance of religious rituals. Each god needed an image, usually a statue or relief in stone or bronze and an altar or a temple at which to offer the prayers and sacrifices. So to be clear, there's a priesthood, there's a high priest, there's private worship, there's public worship, there are gods, lowercase g, and each of the gods have their own uh, altar and temple so that prayers and sacrifices can be offered to appease the gods. Requests and prayers were presented to gods as a trade. If the God did what was requested, then the worshiper promised to do a particular thing in return. If the gods did what was requested, then the worshippers promised to do a particular thing in turn. So, as you're sitting here this morning, if you're doing that with God, you're acting like a Roman pagan worshiper. We don't make exchanges. God, if you do this, I'll do this. That's about you being in control. That's what they were about. This trade was binding. To persuade the gods to favor the requests a worshiper might make offerings of food or wine or would carry out a ritual sacrifice of an animal before eating it. The Romans believed that their gods or spirits were actively involved in their daily lives and as a result, sacred meals were held. So they have a supper. Sacred meals were held in their name, the gods' names, during certain religious festivals. It was believed that the god actually took part in the meal. So they gathered for a supper where God actually took part in the supper. But here's how. A place was set for him at their table. Think about that. A place was set for this God at the table. Invitations were issued in his name. And a portion of the food served was set aside for him to enjoy. If you're paying attention, it sounds a whole lot like Old Testament, tabernacle worship, but take God out of the equation and just put in what God has created. Give someone else credit. Exchange glory. It's exchanging the glory of the immortal God for the glory of things that you can control. So you think. (laughs) Maybe that would be true if there wasn't still God who created those things. The Romans were no different than the Israelites at the base of Mount Sinai. Turn over to Exodus 32. You can't hardly talk about idolatry without at some point going to Exodus 32 during your time. It's a fitting passage for us to consider as we explore the mechanics of idolatry. God's chosen people are at the base of Mount Sinai, and they've just received the law from God, the Big Ten, and on, you know, written in stone. They've received the law, the first of which is this. You shall have no other gods before me. The first law, the first thing that they received was, you shall have no other gods before me. As I was, last night as I was going through sermon details, I kind of thought to myself, man, this is just a big reminder sermon. What can be said about idolatry that hasn't already been said from this pulpit? What could we possibly say that's going to blow someone's mind and open the doors for them so that they see idolatry more clearly? But then I go to this and I realize it was the first thing that God mentioned when giving the law. It was something that by God's design would have to be revisited over and over again. Have no other gods before me. And look at what happens in Exodus 32, just a short while after getting that. Moses is on top of the mountain, receiving the law from the Lord, and he has taken too long. 32.1, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said, up. Make us gods who shall go before us. Now You have to realize, there's no part of God's communication with his people that would have let them know that this is okay. This is an adopted practice from all of the other godless nations, and they are moving in it because Moses is taking too long. Aaron, second in charge, up. Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses... As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said, no, that's a terrible idea. That's what Aaron should have said. Aaron said to them, okay, take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring me all the gold. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. A golden calf. They said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Exchange. You See the exchange there? These are your gods. This golden calf brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Stupid indeed. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Well, let's just mix it up. We'll worship God and the golden calf. And even though God led us out of Egypt, we're going to exchange that glory and, and, uh, and, and just you know, give it to this golden calf and we'll worship the Lord too. It's, it's like trying to walk with one foot in the kingdom of God and one foot in the kingdom of the world. It doesn't work. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drank and rose up to play. Another indicator of the idolatrous people. And the Lord said to Moses, I can't wait for them to gather to worship me later. Nope, that's not what he said. He said, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I mean, think about the plagues. Think about the King Pharaoh as water in the hands of God. Think about the mighty axe. Think about traveling through the wilderness, lit on the front by the light of God and guarded in the back, this cloud and this lightning. Think about the seas. seas. God is saying, they have worshipped a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it, saying, these are your gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and that I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. When the people didn't get what they wanted, when they wanted it, they exchanged the glory of God. They exchanged the glory of the God who actually did bring them out of Egypt for the glory of the golden calf. They didn't like the scary, smoking, earthquake, powerful God who created them. So they made an exchange for something more controllable, something less intimidating, something more tangible, something more on their timeline, something that appealed to their senses. They looked like a bunch of Egyptians or a bunch of Babylonians or even a bunch of Romans, but they did not look like the people who had been delivered by God from their slavery. Although they knew God, they did not honor Him or give thanks to Him. It was personal, it was intentional, it was ungrateful, and it was stupid. And it revealed a profound heart issue that would never be solved through the keeping of the law. You can turn back to Romans 1. Now that we've considered what it says, it's a fitting time to consider what it says to us. It's a fitting time here at the end of the sermon to consider what this might mean for us now that we've seen this human problem with idolatry. It may be difficult for you to consider literally bowing down and giving thanks to a carved piece of wood or metal. So here are some questions to consider regarding the potential idolatry in your own life. Some questions to consider and to think about in light of the text this morning. Who or what gets most of your time? Who or what gets most of your money? Who or what gets most of your thoughts? Are your thoughts useful for the kingdom or are they futile and useless for the kingdom? Is there a decision in your life that you're considering making, even though you are knowingly going against God's will? Is there a decision in your life that you're making and you haven't even prayed about it? You haven't even thought that maybe in this decision you're putting yourself in the place of God because you haven't given thought to pray about it or even to fast and to consider gaining insight and wisdom from the Lord of all of those details. Are there any details that you're worrying over because you haven't taken the time to acknowledge God and to give him thanks? and to entrust those details to his care. Maybe it has to do with your children. Maybe it has to do with your finances. Maybe it has to do with your marriage. Maybe it has to do with your reputation. Essentially what you're doing is you're saying, if I can't get what I want by faith, I will put faith aside and I'll get it by the flesh. That's idolatry. Maybe it has to do with Friendships, maybe it has to do with your job. I urge you this morning to wait on God, to trust him for all of your needs, and do not replace him with anything that he has created, whether that's you playing God in your own life or you trusting something that you think you can control, like money, people, and circumstances. You were not designed to be in control. That doesn't mean that you have no self-control. It simply means that you were designed to allow your creator to be in control. You can't handle the details. You can't handle the stress and strain of all those things without God. The times in my life that were the darkest, that were the hardest, that were confusing, were times where I was not letting God be the God of the details because I wanted to control every single detail. It's especially difficult for control freaks, but it's not only difficult for control freaks. You were not designed to be in control of all things at all times because you are not God. That is idolatry. It's a sober message this morning. It's, It's one that forces us to consider who we are as part of humanity and then who we're supposed to be as those who are in Christ. The supper is the part of... I'm so glad that we do the supper every week because if I had to preach these sermons on God's wrath without going to the supper, it would be kind of miserable every Sunday. But the supper brings us back to the realities of what it means to be in Christ, the realities of faith in Christ, the realities of redemption, the realities of propitiation, of wrath absorbing, the realities of not getting caught up in idolatry even though our culture is swimming in it. The supper knows, it helps us to know our place. As we take the supper... I want you to consider that imagery that I shared earlier about the Romans who set a place at the table for their God. Let's run with that for a minute as we prepare to take the supper. The Romans in paganism and idolatry, they had their own supper. And it wasn't, it wasn't without a God, but what it was was it was their table, and they set a place at their table for their God who they offered some of their food. They sent invitations with his name. Our God has set a place for us at his table. In Christ, there's invitation with your name. We partake of his blessings. We're not sitting here saying, okay, God, we're at our table. Come on, we got a spot for you. We are sitting here realizing that it is God who has made a spot for you at his table by giving you his son's spot. By giving you his son's righteousness. By blessing you by counting his son's perfect life as yours. And by counting your sin as his. Your idolatry as his. The supper sobers us. The supper helps us to understand our place. Our God has set a place for us at his table. No amount of honor or thanksgiving given to God could earn a spot at that table. Rather, Christ died for our sins and gave us his spot at the table. And in response to such sacrifice and such provision from our great God, who alone is God, who is the one true God, who created all things created in a reality that we should never ever waver on in the least, it is a fitting thing for us to consider what he has done and to worship him alone. The opposite of idolatry is worshiping God alone. I'm going to pray and we're going to distribute the elements. Lord, we have no choice but to humble ourselves before you as you have made a place for us at your table. Lord, as we distribute elements this morning, my prayer is that each of us would be mindful of any areas of our life where there is idolatry, where there is us being in control and you being put on the side any areas where you are not being worshipped as the one true God of all things. Lord, I pray for honesty during this time. I pray for heart-filled worship. Rather than the darkened heart, I pray for a heart that worshipped. Rather than futile thoughts, I pray for thoughts that are profoundly useful for the forward movement of your kingdom. And I pray that it's personal but in the other direction, that we are intentional, that we are grateful and thankful, because that's a fitting response of a people who have been shown such great love by our Creator.